This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Facebook Design. Facebook Design invests in building and teaching designers using the best tools for the job. I asked Paola Baricelli, a product designer at Facebook, what she's learned about design since working there. Working at Facebook has taught me that you don't have to be pigeonholed into being a visual or UX specialist. It is possible, and in fact, it's your job to be a generalist. And you get to work with and interact with so many product designers that are on top of their craft, able to seamlessly work through product thinking, interaction design, visual design, prototyping. It's very inspiring. Learn more at facebook.com forward slash design. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry, and before we get into this week's interview, let's talk about our sponsors, MailChimp and Hover. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. No other email service provider is better when it comes down to functionality as well as customer service. Sign up for a free account today at MailChimp.com. When you have a great idea, you want to secure a great domain name for it, and that's where Hover comes in. Hover makes it easy for you to find that domain name that you're looking for and get it up and running with no hassle and no heavy-handed upselling. So go ahead and grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code REVISIONPATH and you'll save 10% off your purchase. Have you heard about Revolve Conference? This conference takes place October 26th through 28th in Charleston, South Carolina and is the place to be for talks on experience design, business, marketing, and how they're all related. We're working with Revolve to offer Revision Path listeners a chance to win three free tickets to attend. Each ticket includes full access to all sessions and activities throughout the conference, including breakfast and lunch. For more information on how you can win free tickets to Revolve Conference, join our Slack community. There's a link in the show notes. And speaking of giveaways, we're also giving away a copy of Rip the Resume, a new book by recruiter Torin Ellis. If you're looking for a job, then Rip the Resume will help you become a more attractive candidate to job seekers. We'll put a link in the show notes for the giveaway. Torn will also be our October AMA chat guest, so stay tuned for more news about that. We have a new iTunes review here. This comes from Flo Deluxe. The title of it is Awesome Insights from a Wide Range of Black Designers. I'm so happy I found the Revision Path podcast. Listening to this podcast, you will hear the experiences of many black designers in different types of roles and with various amounts of tenure in the industry. It is a great podcast to learn from whether you are looking to grow within the desiring profession, to specialize, or to become an entrepreneur. Maurice is an entertaining and insightful interviewer, and he really puts in the work to highlight the characteristics that make each designer he speaks to special. Thank you so much, Flo Deluxe, for that really great iTunes review. I love reading these. Please, if you love the show, I love it when you leave these reviews on iTunes, so thank you so much. Here's our Patreon fundraising campaign update. So we're still holding steady at 39 patrons for a combined total of $267 a month. Again, a big thanks to all of you who have pledged your support and your appreciation for the show. If you enjoy what we're doing here at Revision Path, if you enjoy the guests that we have on the show, or if you've gotten any value from listening, please consider becoming a patron. 
You'll get some great perks like early access to future episodes and free revision path goodies. We also just launched a patron-only podcast so you get even more behind-the-scenes information about what's going on with the show, future things that are happening. It's really, really dope. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 a month and it's a great and affordable way to support the show on a regular basis. Now let's get on to this week's interview. This week I'm talking with Paul Edoaket, a design educator at NOSI College of Art and Fisk University. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Paul Edoaket. I'm currently an instructor at NOSI College of Art and Design, where I'm currently the interactive and web design program manager. And I also teach at Fisk University, primarily fine arts classes. Let's talk about NOSI College of Art, because I'm not sure that's something that maybe our audience is really that aware of, that you know, at, that Nashville has an arts college. Can you talk a little bit about that and how you got started there? Yeah, absolutely. NOSI College of Art is a, is a small arts college here in Nashville, Tennessee. We are a little small. We enroll maybe five, six hundred students, and but we are nimble, and we have very, very low student-to-teacher ratio. So I mean, our classes range from about anywhere from seven to thirteen to fifteen students per class. We focus on design and commercial art, um, but we also have. A lot of courses that are geared towards more towards front-end development and web design and things like that. We've been around for, I think, about 30 years. We seem to be growing a little bit more every day. So talk to me about what you're teaching there. I know you said you're the uh, web and interactive program manager, but are there specific courses that you're teaching or anything like that? We uh, divide our classes into like web languages and interactive design languages. I could teach anywhere in that spectrum. I also teach uh, mobile applications. We've got a little bit of UX, UI sprinkled in there. We also get into, um, in our new degree program, uh, we're going to have more um, business of web design. There will be networks and service structures, just you know, as a general prerequisite, but not that much in depth. We're going to have more courses on um, you know, web aesthetic. We'll have a lot of on web applications. We'll have more. Basically, we're probably going to have about, uh, in our bachelor's degree, we're probably going to have about 70% of our courses that are geared, geared more towards front-end development. And I could be anywhere in that spectrum as far as the specific classes that I teach. I've also been known to teach courses in my, um, in my academic background, which is actually in illustration. I do teach other classes such as book publishing and other core prerequisites such as like Photoshop, Illustrator, basic drawing and things like that. Now, does Nashville have much of a design scene? I know that there are big colleges mm-hmm. in Nashville, like there's Vanderbilt, there's Tennessee State, etc. There's also other HBCUs besides Fisk. There's Meharry Medical College, etc. What's kind of the design scene like in Nashville for people that might be interested in that? Well, Nashville's design scene is, is, I don't know how many people would actually consider Nashville like a, uh, like a design city previously, but they're slowly gaining that reputation. You know, you know, right now, our 
only real direct competitors in the region would be like, you know, maybe Atlanta, as far as the Southeast is concerned. But Nashville's population right now is growing pretty rapidly. We're pretty much at about 10%, 10 annually growth. And so that means in 10 years, the population is going to double. And with that growth, we're seeing a pretty significant boom in a lot of design and technology-related jobs. So um, right now, where there might have been somewhat of a saturation, the, well, the, the graphic design field was fairly competitive in Nashville uh, before. Now we are seeing lots more opportunities and lots more openings uh, for a much wider variety of graphic design jobs. And, um, and you know, I think that trend is pretty much going to keep growing um, for the foreseeable uh, future. Um, and it's not even just Nashville specifically, it's the greater Nashville area, such as like, uh, you know, Franklin, we're seeing more jobs out in Clarksville, Murfreesboro. So, yeah, I think Nashville, pretty soon, I think, you know, Nashville, what it's known for, which is currently music, you know, they call it Music City, I think it's gradually becoming more and more recognized it's not just a music hub, but also like like an arts hub, which would also include, I think, graphic design by proxy. Now, how long have you been teaching at NOSI? This is my, um, I believe, my fifth year teaching at NOSI. I actually, I started off teaching um, high school um, and also freelancing prior to that. And... Uh, I wound up, you know, easing back on the freelancing to teach at college at night. And, you know, it turned out that that was uh, kind of where I, I felt like I should be. So I picked that up, you know, full time. And then and I do that all the time. As well, um, and I also, okay, I don't freelance as much as I used to, but I, I try to still stay current with the industry and pick up jobs here and there. So you've kind of had this progression then, teaching uh, high school art, now teaching college art as well, or college, I guess, design, I should say, let's put it that way. Absolutely. And I could say uh, it, it might have been circumstantial, but a lot of it, I think, I always felt like I was going to gravitate towards teaching at some point. Uh, I, I feel like fundamentally, even I, I consider myself um, an artist first and uh, an educator second. And everything else is kind of uh, is built on top of that. I feel like uh, um, uh, the 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 need to to be able to do art and whatever it is what, that I'm doing, that's satisfied in freelancing or teaching. And I think the cool thing about teaching is that it was a good kind of uh, compromise in terms of a way for me to stay in the creative community and really just hang out with a bunch of other creative-minded people. Even though you can get that from the industry, I don't think the influence that you have over people is, is quite the same as it is in education. But at the same time, like, I would still like to make sure that I'm not one of the teachers that just teaches. Like, I would like to make sure that as much as I can that I'm always not leaning on my education exclusively, but I'm also staying, trying to my best to stay current with the, what's going on in the field and, you know, try to maintain my identity as an active professional at the same time. Now, for a lot of people that we've had on the show, 
they said that they really started learning about whether or not design was going to be something they could do as a profession right around that high school, like late high school, early college time. I think that's kind of interesting that because you've been a high school art teacher and now you're teaching at the college level that you're in that position to help kind of transition more students down that path, if that makes any sense. Yeah, well, I think the ironic thing is, for me personally, I did not, like in some people, they will wake up one day, decide they want to become a fireman or a doctor, and then they go to medical school or they go to, you know, train to be a fireman, you know, and then it's very easy. It's a very direct path between what it is that they want to do and how to get there. And, you know, if you go to medical school, it's not really much other than things that you're going to be other than a doctor. But with somebody that who's an artist, that's not really the case. Like, my background was in fine art. Once you've decided to become an artist, there's about a million different ways that that could go in terms of occupation. And um, I was still very much undecided how that would go for me personally in college. And uh, the thing that I was having difficulty reconciling was that correlation between an artist and the ability to make money. That was something that even though I have a great deal of um, you know, fondness for my alma mater, I feel like my school and a lot of universities in general, they don't really do a good job of bridging that gap between people's their need to create and the capacity to make money. And so that was something I had, a, I had a struggle to try to figure out. And so I did take a lot of time, you know, um, trying to figure out how to freelance, doing it well enough to, you know, sustain myself. But, you know, I wasn't going to be retiring anytime soon. And but through lots of failures and lots of, you know, successes, I did get to a point where I did kind of see patterns in the industry and, and figure out ways that you could actually flow. And the way I felt was that a lot of the stuff I realized, I, it shouldn't have took me so long to figure out. I feel like I, I think it would have been a lot easier if somebody had just came to me and just told me these things directly, which is never really the case a lot of times when you learn things like this. But when I got into teaching, I realized, you know, um, a lot of stuff that I figured out, it was very easy for me to go to another student and kind of expedite the process that took me kind of a long and rough amount of time to figure out. So I feel like, uh, you know, like I could, what I thought was cool was that I could take something that maybe took me five years to figure out and I could accelerate for that, that lesson for a student and present that to them. And I could watch them ex progress occupationally a lot faster than I did. And to me, I think that's, um, is a pretty cool thing to, to actually to be able to see, you know. At that point, you know, once you realize the ability that you have to impact, I mean, that might sound like a cliche, but at the at the moment that you realize your ability to have a, a very rapid and immediate impact on somebody, I think that's um, that's something that's worthwhile as an occupation, and that's kind of how I, I, I arrived at teaching. I actually had my first teaching job teaching art at the Boys and Girls Club when I was in college. And ever since then, I w teaching was always kind of in the background with my professional endeavors kind of in the foreground. 
And the more I taught and the older I got, those two positions just kind of inverted. Teaching became kind of the the foreground, and then everything else kind of receded to the back, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we've had, earlier this month, we had both Douglas Davis and Nikita M. Pope, who are both designers who sort of learned how to also add strategy and things into their services. What they've said mirrors kind of what you've said in that, you know, there are just certain things when they were learning in design school or in art school that they just don't teach you about, like, how to run a business or how to make money off of your art. They teach you the principles about how to make the art, but not how to actually make a living from the art. You said that there were some things that you wish people would have just told you that you just kind of ended up learning on your own. What are some of those things? So uh, one of the things is, um, it might not even seem that intuitive, but one of the things I, I really kind of struggled with was how to say uh, no. A lot of times just your own ambition or just your own um, your own desire to, to succeed or, or whatever the cause might cause you to volunteer yourself into situations that are probably not that beneficial either to you or the client. And the thing that's really hard is getting an, is developing an eye for good client relations. And like I always feel like a a good deal is going to be a good deal for the clients and the developer or the designer. You know, it's going to be good for everybody. You know, it shouldn't be one person is getting over on the other person. You know, some of that you just can only learn with the experience. You know, it's some of that it's hard to just, you know, articulate one specific rule that would work in all cases. But in general, though, a lot of times people find themselves in bad client relationships because they only have one half of the utensils that they need or the utilities that they need. And by that, I mean, like, um, a lot of people, especially when they're first starting out, they're very eager, they're very ambitious, and so they only really have the ability to say yes to every project that comes across their lap. Even outside of, you know, whether or not it's um, beneficial financially, whether it's beneficial in terms of their own professional advancement or whether it's benefit, whatever the reason for the, you know, for taking the project. A lot of times when people are starting out, they're just very, very likely just to say yes all the time. And what's harder is to be able to spot uh, an outcome, uh, a negative outcome before it happens and be able mm -hmm. to say no in, for the intents of, uh, you know, avoiding something that might be bad for everybody involved. You know, I, it was times where, like, I would actually have people ask me to maybe develop a site, and I had to get pretty good at, like, I had to get better about looking at where they were as a business and then determining that I probably was not the developer for them, you know. So, like, you know, maybe somebody has a, um, maybe they've got, like, they want to sell their grandmother's cookies or something, and they would need a, a web designer. And they're leaning on you to be not only the web designer, but they also have the expectations that once they put their website online, then all of a sudden their site is going to blow up, and then they're going to take off as a small business. And, you know, sometimes I would have to have candid conversations with people like, hey, you know, um, at this point in your business, you probably 
don't want to go with uh, a developer such as myself, you might want to just go and get like, you might explore cheaper options. And also, you know, in terms of your expectations, sometimes you have to help frame your clients ideas about what the um, what the function of a designer or developer is. A lot of them, they want, they kind of want you to be their business advisor, their mentor, they want you to be their marketer. And if you're not careful, you could find yourself in a position where you feel like you are responsible for all these different aspects of their business. And and I'm not saying that there's nothing wrong with, you know, if you are an entrepreneur wanting to provide the most services to your client, but there is a point of negative returns. If you try to be everything for them, inevitably there's going to be something that you're trying to bite off that's probably more than you could chew, and it's probably going to make it more difficult for them to go out and get the proper services. I would just say, yeah, I mean, really... The, the ability to judge and make decisions about a client, I think is probably one of the most, one of the most important lessons. And it's one that it really is, is, is a hard thing, like I said, to articulate. But I mean, I think if I do, did have somebody to sit me down and, and be like, hey, Paul, um, I think you need to evaluate this client before you actually take on them. Hey, I think this would be a better fit for you whenever uh, you go out into the field or maybe you need a little bit more experience before you take on this kind of thing. You know, these are kind of the nudges and the scaffolding and things that I feel like would have been good to have gotten in college, right? But but in really in college, at best, you get a lot of abstract ideas. Like, so you might learn some general, you might learn some general techniques for like, you know, work like organization and work etiquette and social skills and things like that. But these are kind of abstractions. You don't learn things that are really specific, at least in the realm of art and design. You don't learn a whole lot of things that are specific to monetizing art and design in a lot of these you know, settings. So, yeah, uh, you know, any of that, I mean, that would be one example. I could go further depending on how I feel about that. Is this something that you're teaching your students? Yes, sir. Yeah. As much as I can, you know, like the other thing is the other half of that is that without, you know, doing too much. I mean, like I I wouldn't want to give the impression that there is no obligation on the, uh, the student to seek out and find the help that they need to go in the direction that they want, because a lot of this this advice that I would otherwise give would not be of any relevance to somebody who doesn't know what they want to do anyway, right? And even in my case, like, I, like, you know, there was a good portion of my college career where I still did not know what I wanted to do. But once I figured it out, it was very easy for me to go out and find information and absorb that information. So as much as I can, I try to give information that's as specific as it can be to everybody and relevant as it can be. And I try to make sure that, you know, um, like the things that I tell them are very much in keeping with the industry. But at the same time, for students that do take the initiative, if I tell students like, hey, you know, just because we're doing an assignment in class, that doesn't mean that that assignment can't be at the same time. There's no reason why a homework assignment couldn't also be 
doubling as a like a project that the student might be doing for a client or something like that. Or even if you don't do something that's also a school assignment, if you happen to be doing something on your own, if you have questions about how to, how to handle your clients or you have questions about how to promote yourself or market yourself, I mean, I kind of encourage them to use their resources, me being one of many resources, but also tap other teachers, ask other students. For those that, that are in keeping with that advice, I always try to do my best to um, try to get them as much information as they can absorb. And that's in a more general sense. But we do have uh, the other cool thing about the school that I'm at is because we are so small, we're kind of um, we're nimble. So I have the ability, I have a lot more creative control over our curriculum. So if I feel like, hey, like a course needs like this much, we need a revision to our business class and we need to stress this idea a little bit more. It's not that hard to make. We don't have to sit through board meetings and things like that. It's very easy for us to make that change. So I think the quality and the directness of uh, of uh, information is um, is a lot more easy to tailor. Now, if that's the case at Nelsie, do you find that it's the same at Fisk? Because you mentioned earlier you also teach fine arts at Fisk. Is it kind of the same way? There are similarities, but... I do feel like there is somewhat of a, um, I think deficiency would be a strong word, but I think uh, one thing I'm noticing about not only uh, Fisk or not, in, in some cases, universities, but more specifically a lot of HBCUs is that, or is a reluctance to leave this kind of arena of fine art and not that fine art would be something I would qualify as bad, but there's this reluctance to evolve it. And what I mean by that is that there's definitely going to be a, a distinct difference between um, fine art and vocation, or like the commercial arts. Like when we, the things that we do at NOSI is more commercial art, which means commercial art being more of a, um, of a like a service industry. So like if you have a design problem or if you have a developer problem then you call a commercial artist and uh same way that if you have a leak you will call a plumber right but you're in the business of, of servicing other people's creative ideas that's your right that's your job to actualize that with fine art you're really more so in the service of yourself i mean you still got to have people buy your fine art but for the most part like there isn't a specific customer or a specific client. What you're doing more is you're just creating for the sake of creating and then you kind of hope that somebody buys it. You know, not to say that there's not strategy, you know, so I'm sure if you are uh, in the South, you're probably going to make fine art that is thematically more different from the type of stuff you might do in New York versus LA or something like that. So, I mean, there is going to be some strategy with fine art, but fine artists have a lot more liberty to do whatever they want versus illustrators, designers, developers, they are more problem solvers. Specifically, they solve design problems for other people. And the thing is, in terms of, of monetizing, between the two, I feel like a lot, I'm not saying that universities should get rid of the fine arts, but I'm saying that they should be adapted to be able to accommodate 
more of that commercial aspect of the art world. So at least students have the choice because there's right now, like what happens with students at schools like Fisk is that they might get their degree in art, but the benefits from the art degree are still a lot more abstract. So maybe only 10 or 20 percent of them actually pursue fine art as a profession. And maybe the rest of them just use their art degree more abstractly. Like maybe they use the art and, and the creative processes that they learn with their bachelor's degree in art, but they go into more like architecture or chemistry or medicine or whatever the field that they go to. Maybe it's not directly in fine art, you know. So maybe so the art maybe serves more as a foundation. And there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, I also noticed that a lot of students are doing these fine arts degrees not because they're super excited about fine arts specifically, but more likely is the fact that they don't really have, for lack of better options is what I'm saying. Like there's been a lot of students at FISC that have expressed to me that they would love to be able to do graphic design, or they love to learn how to develop websites, or they've also would love to learn how to be like a web developer, but the options just weren't there at that specific school. While it is, I'm not trying to, like I said, I'm not trying to devalue, you know, the act of stretching a canvas and painting a painting or doing printmaking or doing sculpture. But I feel like to be able to keep up with consumer demand and to, in order to be able to maintain somebody who has value to their community and still be active in the arts, I don't think there's any way that you cannot address the commercial side of art. If a school has the insight to be able to offer a business degree, then there should also be the same insights. I mean, you could use that same rationale to justify having like a degree that is more commercial, you know, and a little bit more marketable in terms of getting these students into the, perf the professional realm. There was a piece that was in Bloomberg magazine, um, Earlier this year, it was about why doesn't Silicon Valley hire black coders? And they were specifically focusing on Howard University. Mm. And some of the things that were mentioned in that piece are kind of analogous to what you're saying here with what Fisk University is doing or, or rather not doing as it relates to kind of making sure that their design students are able to go out and actually compete in this market and compete for jobs and not just go out with this with this abstract knowledge. Right. How do you sort of see the state of HBCUs in general when it comes to design education? Is that something that an up-and-coming black designer should be looking towards if that's what they want to do with their career? Should they be looking to HBCUs to continue that? I think the short answer is yes. Absolutely, they should be looking to HBCUs because a lot of that argument could be, you know, the chicken or the egg kind of thing, you know, what would need to happen first? Should HBCUs create the designers and the developers first, or should the industry create a demand for it first? I don't think the latter is necessarily going to happen. I don't think that, you know, all of a sudden people are just going to create a myriad of opportunities for minorities out of the unprompted without. I think more likely, uh, I think, me personally, I feel like the designers and developers would have to be created first. And then once they realize that there is a surplus of untapped potential, then I think they would be more likely to be picked up. But right now, I think the HBCUs, they have a kind of an uphill battle 
because they have to fight that stigma that they already have, that there is a lack of, for lack of a better word, talent at you know HBCUs. But at the same time, the other side of that it would be that it really shouldn't matter. You know, like it, I, I don't feel like the success of designers and developers um, at HBCUs shouldn't really necessarily be contingent on the good graces of Silicon Valley, right? I feel like the nature of um, the uh, design economy is such that there's always going to be a need for designers. And I feel like there is enough, There's. I feel like there's enough opportunity for really any community that wants to sustain artists. I think there's a, there's a big enough community, there's enough currency in that community that I feel like, I think that there's an ability for a community to create the jobs and hire the jobs. Uh, I mean, and hire the uh, designers or developers at the same time. And by that, I mean that currently, even if I didn't know a thing about design, if even if I wanted to, start a whole new business right here in Nashville and I had all you know let's say I had all the money that you know that I, you know was necessary to make my business happen and I decided I needed to outsource some of my design work well what happens is even me myself as a minority a lot of times just out of lack of better uh, knowledge I would probably exfiltrate my money into some other community anyway and and so what I'm saying is that people don't have to go all the way to Silicon Valley to find a consumer that's willing to pay for the services of a designer. I think there's plenty. Uh, right now, for example, I think I just read an article recently that said like African-American women are the most entrepreneurial group in America. And which means that there's always going to be new businesses new opportunities for people to solicit um, the help of, you know, minority developers and and designers. But the problem is, I think people almost intuitively or for whatever reasons, they don't tend to look in the minority communities. Um, And so I think basically, I guess a better way of saying it is I feel like minority communities could be the answer to, I mean, they could be the question and the solution for the same for that you know in itself they don't necessarily have to rely on these external forces and what happens is if there was some sort of self-initiated kind of cycle of design consumption and you know designers and design consumption i feel like uh what would happen is inevitably people outside of the community would probably pick up on that and then and tap into that cycle if that makes sense so I guess, you know, taking that into account, I'm curious about kind of what your teaching experiences have been at NOSI versus at Fisk. Right. There have been times where I've been teaching at one school and I'm thinking, you know what, they need this exact info at this other school. There's too bad there's not an outlet for this exact information. I wouldn't go as far as to compare the performance of one school to another because ultimately I feel like... Whether or not the student performs is ultimately a function of the effectiveness of of the teacher, right? But I feel like if there was more of an avenue for some of these more technology and design-related fields at a school like Fisk, 
I do feel like it wouldn't be very far-fetched for me to see some very exceeding results. And by that, I mean, I just had this conversation with some of my students at Fisk and that there are a lot of them would definitely say that there are shortcomings at the HBCU in terms of funding and in terms of, you know, facilities and things like that. But the one thing I was mentioning was that a lot of those issues were still issues even when I went to Fisk because that's, that's actually my alma mater myself. One of the things I would probably point out is that all of that being considered, for whatever reason, just about everybody I knew who was in my cohort, like everyone is for whatever reason, you know, not necessarily well-to-do, but all of them have some relative degree of success that I would say is probably abnormal considering the conditions. And that touches into some factors that about the university that it probably exists that don't necessarily exist at a lot of other schools, right? And, and it might even be more of a quality of uh, even HBCUs in general. And I think, um, and, I, and for whatever reason, you know, I'm seeing more and more people. For, I just ran into a woman, a young lady, yesterday at the grocery store who uh, she recognized me from our graduating class. I was talking to her. She was saying she had she was married with kids, and she was telling me that she just started a business that currently teaches music to about 150 middle school students here in Nashville, and they've got, you know, they're partnered with four different local middle schools. And what's interesting to me was that I was telling her that she's about the fourth person from our graduating class that has done something exactly like that. You know, um, I told her about two other people that have actually opened up their own, that are successful enough with their youth education programs that they are actually opening up their own facilities. Now, none of them were business majors. These are music majors and these are art majors and you know, some of them are psychology majors and things like that. But for some reason, there's something very entrepreneuring about people, uh, you know, who have been through that HBCU experience. I'm not, you know, uh, I mean, there I have theories about why that, you know, about, you know, that, well, some people would argue that if you've been to a really really well-to-do a middle school and that leads you to the best high school in Nashville and that leads you to an Ivy League college and that leads you to a Wall Street firm. Everything is kind of laid out for you and there's not a whole lot of, uh, I'm not trying to say it's not difficult, but there's not a whole lot of um, the ability to like, what a lot of people might like call grit or the, the need to evolve or adapt a situation or evolve or grow outside of a track that's been placed for you. I think that's something that you don't really cultivate under those scenarios. But if you come from a, an environment where nothing, where you do have all these shortcomings and you don't have a lot of uh, like opportunities, I think if you have to craft one from scratch out of nothing, I think is going to have a lot, whatever that endeavor is, is probably going to have a lot more integrity. So yeah, I was talking to this, uh, this young lady and, um, and we were just remin reminiscing and we realized there was so many people from our class that were entrepreneuring and like successfully. And even besides that, a lot of these are, are, they have gone into like politics. We have lots of principals. We got lots of, we, uh, plenty of educators. We got, you know, 
people going into um, tech and design, even though there was really no tech or design background at the school. So, you know, by that, with that in consideration, I figured if they can do that much without really any hand handout or hands, you know, or, or any sort of lift up academically, I figured if there was an academic kind of structure or foundation there, I wouldn't be surprised to see them go far above, you know, way above and beyond whatever the average social norms are, you know. Now, that's just FISC, but and if you're asking about the difference between the two, the thing about um, NOSI is that, like I said, we do get a large spectrum. We do get a, a wide range of students who are, uh, who have a lot of potential and are really good students before they came here. And we, you know, we do our best to make them better, but at the same time, I also feel like at the other end of the spectrum, we also get students that have a lot of opportunity to uh, progress, you know. Um, but the cool thing about NOSI is that I think because it's so small, it's much easier to make sure everybody gets kind of the nourishment that they need to go in whatever specific direction that they want to. Right, so the teaching style is going to be slightly different, and I think there's also something to be said about getting a student that does need a little bit of a little bit of patchwork, and then seeing them kind of evolve into not only a successful graduate but also a successful uh, professional within just a, a, a few years. You know, and I think it's something interesting about teaching in a school that's not very widely known. With locals in Nashville who've never heard of Nosy College of Art, but what I'm noticing is the last time that we actually did a um, a senior portfolio show, and we had people like prospective employers and and you know other professionals out looking at these senior portfolios. What I thought was very interesting was the fact that we were having students that were getting jobs that were offered to them by former students. So basically, now, every year when I go out to different technology or design-related functions in the community, I'm hearing more and more talk about NOSI, and not only NOSI, but NOSI students, but I'm also seeing more, um, like, when I tell people where I work, I'm not really hearing people as much say, uh, you know, NOSI College of Art, where is that? You know, people are, it is getting a little bit of brand recognition. And I think that's cool because, like, it's cool to be able to be a, a, a part of it and to see it happen. You know, that's that type of reward is something that is 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 not really that common. I think. So I think they're they're small, but they're fast growing, and I think the quality of their product, and by the product I mean their student, I think it gets better every year. I hear so many people say that the artwork on the wall gets better. I hear people say that the proficiencies of the uh, and, and the abilities and the talents of the graduates is getting better every year. I do approach the schools a little bit differently in terms of you know expected outcomes, but in general, the main objective, which is to get students that are prepared to go out there and not just make money, but make money at the thing that they actually want to do. I think that general objective is uh, pretty much the same at both schools. But I would never probably go as far as to compare like one student to the other in terms of like 
you know, talent or the ability to earn an income or whatever else. Okay. So what was it like for you, your time at Fisk? I enjoyed it. it. You know, I definitely, I would say it was very informative. I'm not sure if my experience is really, um, I don't, you know, a lot of people will probably say this about whatever their alma mater was. I'm not really sure that my experience really could be replicated. And I do feel like Fisk does have a lot of unique things to offer. And, and one of those things are this, these specific individuals. Like, there are a lot of very specific professors and instructors that, that are, you know, obviously you're probably not going to find anywhere else. But I did learn a lot in terms of, as far as the curriculum, you know, I did get a lot out of that. But at the same time, I feel like there's a lot of stuff outside of the curriculum that is kind of difficult to get other places. You know, one quick example is, you know, when I first started teaching, when I realized I was going to teach, I actually had a... Um, I decided that I was going to take student, a student teaching class, which is basically where you have to go teach at a school, but you're kind of just, you're still being observed by an actual teacher, but you basically teach the middle school or high school or, you know, elementary class. And I was in the habit of, you know, dressing, you know, business casual, you know, like just khakis and, a, and I had a, a, an instructor tell me one time, like, Fisk guys, we always dress up. And I was like, uh, at the time, being, you know, the age that I was, I, I was, I said, well, that's probably not going to happen. You know, I don't even have business clothes, which was true at the time. I had maybe one necktie, maybe one dress shirt. And I was like, so I, I don't, I'm not sure that that's probably going to happen. Plus, it's not my style anyway. <laughs> and so what happens is maybe a week later, my instructor comes in while I'm in the middle of teaching a lesson and he has a garbage bag full of neckties and they all used to belong to him and he drops them down in the middle of the floor and he's like now you got no excuse yeah from then on i dressed up for every every day for student teaching and for every other job i had like that's not really like a curriculum kind of thing that's just more of like the people at fist kind of thing their kind of culture and what they kind of like to impress so you know i, I definitely feel like it was a very good a positive it was some negative thing but it was mostly positive things about it and i do feel like it was um, a very unique experience well i mean it kind of felt like they were looking out for you not just as you know a design student they were looking out for you as a professional as an individual as a yeah as an individual and a lot of that uh, you know a lot of the benefits for uh, and i keep hearing the same thing it's like yeah it's not about you know, it's the people at Fisk, or it's the it's the it's the social skills that you get, or you know, it's the abilities uh, to communicate. And I wouldn't disagree if anybody was to say that to me. You know, and and I think that there is a a bit of a culture there, in terms of not only looking out for you, but you know, there's a general kind of expectation that you know, if you do leave that school, then you're kind of going to kind of be representative of that school. Even if people go to that school and the facilities don't look that great and there's not a lot of evidence of a whole lot of money and things like that, once you leave the school, there's still kind of like a perception about what somebody that went to that school probably should be, right? Like a lot of people, I would have somebody, I would have people come to me all the time from the state school, which was TSU, which is uh, also at HBCU. They would come to me sometimes and 
Tay would say, hey, like, where do you go to school? And I'm going to say, I went to Fisk. They'd be like, oh, you went to Fisk? You must be real smart, huh? And I didn't really want to tell them that, like, I had taken classes at TSU before. Like, I really didn't want to tell them that it's not that Fisk is really that much harder than TSU. You know, it's just different. But just because the expectation, just because the perception is there, I mean, that kind of forces, like, some degree of evolution of, of how you kind of perceive yourself, you know. I think, you know, I would agree that the faculty and the, uh, there's a, is a support to reinforce that. So let's kind of switch gears here a little bit. I know we've talked a lot about you as an educator. We've talked about your time, you know, at Fisk. What kind of keeps you motivated with what you do? Because it seems like a lot of the work that you're doing, you're really inspired by teaching and educating. What motivates you and what kind of influenced you to go that route? Some people would think that it's maybe just the apple not falling far from the tree. My mother was an educator for 30 years. She actually taught at the previously mentioned school at TSU for about three decades, a little bit over. And, you know, she raised me and my siblings, five of us total by herself, my entire childhood. I thought that me becoming a teacher would have been the worst thing that could have happened to me. You know, in fact, I remember my siblings... Not only would we not want to be educators, we would say things to each other like, that's why you're going to go to Fisk when you get older. You know, like, so like <laughs> that's like a horrible kind of job. But like we spent lots of time at these colleges because my mother was an educator. We spent a lot of time at TSU. We spent a lot of time at Fisk. Like we knew a lot about these colleges because just hanging around these, these campuses as kids. When you're younger, you have all these cliches about college, like it's going to be all these road trips and house parties and things like that. And I just assumed that whatever my college experience was going to be was going to be somewhere like a real college, like somewhere else. And then it's like the and then, you know, of course, you know, I wound up actually going to Fisk and, you know, high school, which I hated so much. I hated high school as a student, but I swore I would never go back. But then I ironically wound up teaching at the same high school I graduated from, wound up teaching at the same university I graduated from. And the, the reason is, one of the things I started to realize is as I went to more and more schools, high schools, colleges, went to community colleges to learn more, like continuing education, went to graduate school. The more schools I went to, I realized that the grass is always kind of greener. Like everybody thinks that there, some other school has it better than they, they do, right? And a lot of people take for granted the things that they can be taking advantage of at their own institutions. And I feel like there, in my academic life, there was a lot of wasted time. And there was a lot of time where, you know, I was probably, you know, a lot of people say that, you know, the most productive years of someone's life are supposed to, or physically, the most agile and, you know, physically fit and all that stuff. I've heard before, not sure if it's true, that are, that's supposed to be the, between the ages of 18 and 25 for an adult male. And I remember realizing, I remember hearing that when I was about 26 <laughs> and being, <laughs> being pretty upset about that. Like, man, you know, like I wasted all this time, you know, and... So, you know, so the irony is that the time when people are most physiologically fit, they're probably the least productive in terms of their occupational goals, financial goals, things like that. You'll never find like it's hard, rare to find like a 20 year old who's investing in mutual funds. But it's very unlikely that you're going to find like a 19 year old that's running a small business. 
So, you know, the older I got, I realized, you know, what would be really cool is if I could put my 30 plus year old brain inside of like some 21 year old college student, you know, and then see what they do with the information I got. Like, would they start a business? Would they be successful? And I jokingly tell my students all the time, you know, you know, I'm going to be working for you in about five years. So, you know, make sure you remember me. But in reality, that's I say that jokingly, but in reality, I think that's really true. I mean, not that I desire to go work for one of my students, but if that situation happened, that I walk into a job interview and my boss sit, sitting there is one of my former students, I feel like that's a pretty significant, that would be a pretty significant feeling of uh, accomplishment, I think. And, you know, I feel like uh, another thing I try to instill is that, you know, my students are, you know, once they graduate, they're not my students anymore, like they're my competitors, you know. And so I would love to be out there trying to get a client and realize that I'm competing with one of my students. I think that would be a pretty significant achievement on my part. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the idea. It's just that, you know, maybe it's one of those vicariously living through uh, a student kind of thing. Or maybe, I don't, I'm not really sure what the motivation is behind it, but I just feel like uh, I do get a sense of success by being a participant in somebody else's success you know so so you said that you felt like there was time that you you wasted you said like between 18 and 25 taking that into account do you feel like you are where you wanted to be at this stage in your life i think what's funny is that i really didn't that stable of an idea of what my life would be at like five years from then, 10 years from then. And that, and that was when I'm talking about, you know, the lack of or the taking my time for granted, granted as, a, as a, somebody in their youth. Part of the problem was that I didn't have a very solid construct of what fu the future me would look like. So, I mean, and this is the case I could say, I could probably say yes or no. What's funny is that I knew, like, when I was younger, I always wanted to be the youngest person to do something, you know, or everything. You know, I wanted to be the youngest person to, like, publish a book or the youngest person to be, like, teaching. I wanted to be, like, once I realized that I wanted to teach high school, I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I was, like, some sort of, like, Doogie Hauser and, I, you know, like, teaching. It's, it's, so it's, like, once I had that realization, once I started to realize, like, the, the imminence of, of my own age, I felt like time was kind of getting away from me. So I always wanted to do everything first. I mean, do everything as soon as I could and try to be the... The funny thing is that once I did really get some objectives, like some really solid objectives, like I wanted to have a, a master's degree by this age or I want to have a small business by this age, for I did find myself hitting a lot of those benchmarks but a lot of times I wasn't hitting them in the way that I thought I would a lot of what times sometimes I might glide into them like uh and let down the landing gear and you know a perfect kind of landing into this one specific objective in some cases I might like kind of crash into it and then I you know after the debris in the aftermath I get out of it I'm like wait a minute I'm right where I thought I was supposed to be so it's, it's, that's a difficult kind of question to ask. But for a lot of those object, objectives that I made for myself later in life, I think I have been pretty good about meeting them. Now, does that mean that I feel like uh, 
I mean, I still feel like there's a lot of room for improvement. I still feel like uh, uh, a lot of my objectives have yet to be met. But I don't feel the difference is, you know, when I was younger, there was a lot more panic. And I'm trying to figure I'm trying to hurry up and do stuff before I'm unsuccessful or whatever I thought was going to happen. But now it's a lot more. I realize that I'm not might not be exactly where I would like to be. But at the same time, it's a lot easier for me to not panic because I have a, a reference for my starting point. I know where I am currently. And so I can see the progression. And the rest is just mathematics. Like I, I could, with a good degree of confidence, say to myself, if I just keep doing what it is that I'm doing, not only will I hit this mark on time, but also hit this mark on time. And that brings a lot more um, security. And I think that security is not even necessarily just financial, you know, but it's just about the ability to be able to construct not a future, but a path to a future. You know, um, you know, I actually, uh, I've actually had this talk with my students at times, you know, about depression, you know, and I've told them, you know, I was told by someone that depression is the inability to construct a future. So you're in a situation and you can't see your way out of it. And I feel like what's very gratifying is to be in a situation and to have a very, a very real and a very obtainable way of getting out of that situation. That's something that a lot of younger people don't really have, at, you know, for, from an occupational standpoint, is a way to get out of their current situation. You know, they talk about, if we're talking about minorities, like, you know, black people, we've got a one in 10 chance of getting out of our economic bracket. So, like, if you've got, you might have two families of five kids living right next door to each other, only one of them is probably going to make it to the lower middle class. And the, a lot of that is just the inability to to construct a way out of it, you know. So I feel like I'm kind of fortunate in that regard, you know. So where do you kind of see yourself now in the next, let's say, five years? Have you thought about that? I'll probably be teaching still. <laughs> I keep telling people I'm not going to be retiring anytime soon. That's pretty much the educator's model. But I do, um, what I do see is there will be a time where I will have to, like once I finish getting this uh, degree off the ground and I put in a few more years, there will be a time where I'm going to invert again, where I will get back into, where I will start build, uh, start rebuilding my um, my entrepreneurial side and get more back into freelancing and more into the um the consultant side of things and what will happen is uh, at that point I'll probably reduce the amount of that time that I spend teaching but I see myself pretty much teaching for the foreseeable future even um you know I couldn't I wouldn't even be surprised to find myself like uh even after retirement like like I the one thing I tell my students is that if you have a job and you don't care about sitting and working an extra couple of hours even after the class is over then it's probably not a bad job, you know. Or if this is Monday and you don't hate that you have to go to work, you know, you don't care whether it's Wednesday or whether it's Saturday, like, you know, it's not like one part of your week is worse than the other, then you're in a pretty good place in terms of uh, your occupation. Even if I hit the lottery, I'm pretty sure I'd be teaching it you know, at least a class or two. You know, definitely wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't be teaching as much, but 
it'll be on the horizon, you know. And like I said, there was definitely a time where I definitely could not see myself being an educator, you know, and I thought I was far from it. I had no, but the thing is, it's just that I don't think that's really a coincidence that I would wind up gravitating towards the thing, the very thing that I tried to stay away from, you know. And beyond that, there's an expectation of more progress in my, um, my, you know, assets, my financial portfolio. And um, it's basically, at this point, five years from now, I see myself more of the same, just even more stable with a lot more flexibility. That's the objective. All right. Well, just to kind of wrap things up, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and your classes and everything online? The best way to reach me is actually in person. I encourage anybody to come check out either campus that I teach at, Nosy College of Art or Fisk University. I, um, both of them come highly recommended. I happen to know that we have great instructors there. Beyond that, you can, uh, you can reach me um, on LinkedIn, on Facebook, my portfolio website for uh, my illustration is um, pauldoesart.com. Um, and um, coming soon, I will have up my, uh, there will, um, I'm going to launch, be launching in the spring of 2017. My, um, my freelance business will be back up again. And that's going to be actuate.com. And that's going to be uh, axu8.com. And, you know, the idea there is that I will start taking clients uh, as far as web development, web design, application development. And, and the idea here is that working with a team and we're intended to be full stack. We're going to have back-end developers. We're going to have uh, SEO and marketing. And um, we also have some motion graphics and uh and graphic designers on our team as well so and that will be coming spring of 2017 yeah any one of those will work all right sounds good well paul thank you again so much for taking time out of your day i know you're kind of doing this right around the beginning of the school year so i appreciate just taking time out to talk about a lot of the work that you've done it's it's been good to hear your perspective particularly on design education uh, for HBCUs and things like that. And I think throughout, you know, the personal journey that you talked about coming up from uh, being a teenager through now and how design has, has really kind of helped shape that, I think is really inspirational and powerful for people to hear. So thank you again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. No, thank you, Maurice. It's been a pleasure. Thoughts of love are in and that's it for this week. Big thanks to Paul Etowiket, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Paul and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks, of course, as always, to our sponsors, Facebook Design, MailChimp, and Hover. Facebook invests in design. They care deeply about how their design team might do their best work, and that manifests itself in a number of different ways, such as building tools like origami, sharing what they've learned on Medium, and by giving back to the design community. Learn more about Facebook design at facebook.com forward slash design. More than 10 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters. Their attitude might be playful, but their business is serious. Sign up for a free account today. MailChimp. Send better email. 
Hover takes all the hassle and confusion out of buying and managing your domain. Search for a few keywords and Hover will show you the best available options across all the 400 plus domain extensions out there. Ready to get started? Save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code REVISIONPATH at checkout. This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro audio by Yellow Speaker. If you like this episode, please do me a huge favor. Leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. It only takes a minute or two, and it really does help the show by bumping us up in those iTunes rankings for design podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. The Vision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit us over at Patreon and become a patron. Just go to patreon.com forward slash revision path and pledge your support. Pledge level started just $1 per month, and you'll get access to behind the scenes information about the show, upcoming interviews, and so much more. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>